Welcome, everyone, to Mindful's podcast, Point of View. I'm Barry Boyce, Editor-in-Chief of Mindful and Mindful.org. And today, I have the pleasure of talking with uh, my good friend and colleague, Rhonda McGee. Rhonda's Professor of Law at the University of San Francisco. And she's a mindfulness teacher who's been focused for some years on issues having to do with uh, mindfulness in the law, mindfulness for lawyers in their everyday work, uh, justice, public policy, and in particular, focusing increasingly on issues of inclusivity, in-group, out-group, bias, and is uh, pioneering something she calls color insight, which we'll talk about later on. So welcome, Rhonda. Thank you very much, Barry. It's good to be with you. Yeah, so um, you and I met for the first time um, quite a few years ago now, it must be, Mm -hmm. at a retreat in Kalamazoo, Michigan, mm-hmm. in a beautiful forest. And uh, I recall we had an opportunity to take a couple of walks around there. And, um, you know, I, I get to know each other and I, I got a, a good chance to, to begin to know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like, uh, if you don't mind, if you could tell a little bit of, of your background for our listeners, you know, how mm-hmm. you grew up and where you grew up and, and, uh, then work your way towards how you ended up practicing mindfulness. <laughs> well, thank you. So um, I grew up in the South. <clears throat> I was born in, uh, in 1967, right? So 50 years on the planet, <laughs> um, 50 good years, I would say. Well, the last few have been more challenging than many in the past, I'll say. So born in the South, <clears throat> born at a time when, actually in the last year of Martin Luther King's birth, um, so right at the kind of a very poignant time in American history where we were um, bringing um, the civil rights movement uh, kind of to, in, in a certain sense, a kind of peak in terms of articulating uh, the promises of a movement for inclusivity that would be supported by law and public policy and might change the culture. Um, and so I think my own journey here was influenced in some not insignificant way by the fact that I was born then and there, um, raised in a family that was mostly, well, that was Christian um, and um, particularly raised by a grandmother and others in the family who were um, deeply uh, committed to religious practice <clears throat> and to a kind of a discipline of daily, um, what they call, would call prayer um, and study, uh, but look very much like kind of daily meditation um, discipline, if you will. Uh, so witnessing as a little girl, seeing my grandmother practice every day, get up in the morning before dawn, commit herself to a kind of centering and then going out in the world and working very hard. She didn't have a glamorous job. She cleaned houses for other people and took care of the family. And then on the weekends helped to support community. She had become herself a lay minister in a particular Christian tradition. So I grew up then 
in a family that was already kind of deeply engaged in the in the idea of practice and daily practice for one's own um, sustenance in a world that wasn't necessarily, in fact, created for our thriving, um, but also to support us in the work of make, trying to make the world um, as livable and kind as possible for ourselves and for our communities. Uh, so I went, uh, moved from North Carolina to Virginia, you know, did most of my schooling in Virginia, went to the University of Virginia, studied law and soci sociology at the graduate level, um, and then ended up teaching at the University of San Francisco. For me, mindfulness came in part in a kind of, first of all, I think it was an organic way in which I was always very drawn to solitude and drawn to uh, my own, you know, developing inner uh, work. <clears throat> and found mindfulness in particular, or meditation, I should say, first. Um, in 1993, the year I came out from San Francisco, or from, from the South to San Francisco, and really just on the one hand, at this moment of new opportunity, I was starting a new job as a lawyer, uh, having you know, trained and focused and done all these different things, but also was in this you know, brand new place with everything around me sort of new and different, and starting this fancy job at a law firm that also because I would, was the only African-American, only young woman of color at the time in, a, in an office of about 70 or so lawyers, I just already knew there were going to be some additional challenges that would come with that beyond the everyday challenges of being a young lawyer. So I felt at that time a need to make more consistent and committed my own personal practice regimen and so started exploring actually ways of deepening my own ground, my own um, sources of inner support that were more aligned with who I had become by then. Um, I'm still very inspired by Christ's message and teachings. Um, and yet at the same time, for me, I kind of needed a, a way of um, entering into a spiritual journey that was um, a little more... Um, sort of informed by practices that specifically would assist me in working with my own mind, um, knowing my own kind of conditionings and habits, and specifically um, putting myself in a position to deal with stress and to deal with um, the way, those kinds of, the ways that, you know, my own reactivities and, and um, uh, ways of being in the world might make for more suffering than I needed to endure. So I was drawn to meditation, I was drawn to mindfulness, and from there just developed a regular practice that led me to teaching and training through a variety of wonderful teachers, including Norman Fisher, uh, a former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, who's been a teacher of mine for years, and then actually more recently, 10 or 12 years ago, um, became affiliated, met John Kabat-Zinn um, along the way, and. Um, through his inspiration, prepared myself for mindfulness-based stress reduction intervention type teaching by going through the teacher training program at the um, Center for Mindfulness, um, OASIS Center for Mindfulness. So that's a, in a nutshell. Um, yeah. Well, no, that's, a, that's a beautiful nutshell. Um, 
And, uh, you know, it seems to me that you grew up in, in what we might call today in the jargon an intentional community. Um, you know, your, yeah. was it your grandmother, you say? Or yes. Who was, uh, you know, a lay minister. And mm -hmm. um, is it fair to say that um, you, you, you derived a lot of strength from that community going, growing up? Yeah, I mean, it is fair. And, and, and it's also fair to say that the community was very, um, you know, was, had its back up against the wall in many ways, right? So it was um, still very segregated. Like my kindergarten school, despite the fact that it was by then 1972 when I was entering kindergarten, it was still officially segregated in the South. Nothing had changed despite Brown versus Board. Um, yeah, well, and I mean that the, the you know the, the the you hear the you say well during the Jim Crow period as if that <laughs> ended. Really <laughs> like, <back there>. right, <laughs> right, right, right. So it's right. We're it still continues, and yet it had a t certain kind of flavor when it was completely um, and in in very intensive ways supported and endorsed by our legal system and by our police and by our churches. Right, so there is, um, while segregation continues actually in a way that I do think it's important to really be clear about, you know, the difference between the kind of very official commitments and explicit endorsement of white supremacy that was in place throughout, even starting my lifetime, between what, what was in place then and what's in place now, which is not as much. We're, we're re-entering, I would say, a period where people are re-embracing white supremacy in a way that actually is quite, um, it's meaningful and important. We, we need to talk about that. It's part of why I do the work that I do. But yeah, I, um, I had this period in my life where really the dominant message was to kind of respond and re redress white supremacy, to make a society that was fair. And I wouldn't be here if we hadn't gone through that period, right, where we had um, a civil rights movement that led to um, changes in public policy that led to opening up of educational opportunities for people like me, you know, um, that literally weren't there before, um, actually dismantling um, to a degree, the patterns of segregation that had been in place that are resurfacing today, right? So we, I think part of uh, what needs to be understood is we actually did make a lot of change. Led to me being literally here in this conversation with you, led to electing um, Barack Obama's president and many other things. And, at, and we are now, I think, really at a moment societally where all of that change is facing really probably the most intense backlash that I've, that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And so um, mindfulness for me um, increasingly became a support for looking clearly at what needs to be seen with regard to those issues. I was already teaching a class dealing with race and law. I have taught such a class at the University of San Francisco and other places. William and Mary College in Virginia, and you know where I visited. Um, but main, my main place has been at USF, and there, very diverse back groups of students from you know new new immigrant families, um, first generation students from all over the world, African American, white students, all coming together to try to learn American legal history and the way in which 
um, race and bias has been a feature of our history for, for since the founding. Yeah, I'd like to return to that topic uh, a little later on in a deeper way. Um, but first, I want to um, to talk a little bit about community. As you said, you know, you were in a community that had its back up against the wall. Yes. And uh, yet managed to derive some strength in the middle of that struggle. Yes. And uh, even including in in the face of of real hate, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, in yes. the of, of love and, and um, you know, turning the other cheek, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. you know, quite a bit of, uh, of incredible bravery there. Um, yes. I think for a lot of people, mindfulness is something that, well, really for anybody, I think would be strengthened by community. And um, we are now in our fifth anniversary. In fact, this podcast is our fifth anniversary celebration podcast. So you've been chosen. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. To, uh, to lead that off. And um, honor. thank you. It, we're using this uh, slogan of mindfulness for all. And yet, um, you know, in many ways, mindfulness practice seems to be a, a phenomenon of the mainstream privilege culture, even though there are a number of good programs that are breaking down some barriers. But, um, you know, there's a lot more barriers to be broken down, obviously, before we could say that mindfulness feels like something that is truly accessible to all. Um, And, uh, you know, could you say something about what you think the barriers are to greater inclusion and a, and a bigger spectrum of mindfulness practitioners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it links, I do think, in, um, in important ways to this notion of community. Um, I do think that the kind of experience that I shared about growing up in a world where um, I was very sort of aware of suffering, Right, it wasn't an abstraction, um, and and the idea of finding support for dealing with suffering, and then um, realizing that this is not a personal project. That indeed, you know, we do what we do for for ourselves, but we do it in community. Always, we're always embedded in community. That was something that I was um, that was that was always very apparent to me. Um, and so for me, um, when I look at the kind of Western mindfulness scene, I do think a barrier to allowing its rich potential to infuse and, and, and enrich the lives of broader and broader swath of our human population, our human family, a barrier to that is the way that it's taught in the midst of a society that hasn't reckoned with racism, sexism, and all the other isms uh, very well, right? So it, part of the way in which we haven't reckoned with those things is that hyper-focus on individualism, right? To kind of de-disconnect, um, denude our experience from its embeddedness in community and culture, 
right? So that is kind of hand in glove with racism, sexism, homophobia, all of that, is to sort of deny the relevance of culture, of community, of history. And mindfulness has been a bit, not intentionally, but again, because deep in our cultural, our structures of this, of this society, of Western societies and many societies in the world right now, are kind of hidden ways of perpetuating the status quo, including perpetuating racism, sexism, et cetera. And one of those sort of subtle ways is to hyper-focus on the individual. It's not about sex or race or culture. It's really about you as an individual and whether or not you can overcome. And, and again, through no intentional fault of its own, I think mindfulness has been taken up in the midst of that culture. This is so, so what you're what you're really saying, the first thing you bring up here um, in terms of barriers, it's it's very interesting. This is kind of a very deep and subtle barrier of making it a personal improvement project. Is that really what you're saying? That Absolutely. that that doesn't begin with you as a social being, being mm-hmm. with um, you know, who embodies a culture as part of a culture. Is that really what you're driving at? Yeah, it, it absolutely. You know, it begins with the personal improvement. And the difficulty is that there is a very important uh, role for the personal improvement project. <laughs> That's the difficulty. Like, it, the, pro, the difficulty is that absolutely focusing on individual efforts, practice, and so on, is really essential to, to, I think, mindfulness, to the liberatory potential of mindfulness, the freedom that can come from that. It's essential for us to have personal commitments. The problem is that in our society, it's sort of either or. It's either about the personal or it's about the social. It's, and yet, our, I think if we can open to our own experience, we know we're always already both individuals in a world and and i think again the challenge is to sort of convey mindfulness as about a practice for individuals in in a world in communities in systems so it's it's the kind of more in a more nuanced and um profound way bring mindfulness forward as it is which is a support for individuals embedded in communities and systems that are constantly a part of, right, um, what it is that we, we struggle with, what sets us up for the particular kinds of suffering that we endure. So it's, it's to kind of deepen, move us away from this tendency to only focus on the individual and to infuse it. It's individual and community. It's both and. And, and mindfulness, I think, because it opens up our capacity to see things through multiple lenses at once, has a profound ability to help us, and in that sense, lead Western culture forward. Because I think our entire culture suffers from these false dichotomies, right? The inability to see the world through multiple lenses at once, uh, to deal with that kind of complexity in a world beset with more and more complex problems. So that is a, a 
very fundamental barrier that that we could contemplate for quite a while and I, I'd like to to see if you could if there are any other discrete barriers and mm -hmm. that you could mention or that, that come to mind and and then I'd like to talk about ask you about some practical first steps that might help to loosen those things up in addition mm -hmm. to just what you already said about contemplating that uh, dichotomy and uh, the unavoidable fact of being an individual and a commun communal person at the same time. So what are some other barriers that come to mind for you? Yeah, so, you know, relatedly, we largely continue to live in very segregated communities and cultures and systems. And that's a fact that is um, kind of, again, a one that we struggle to keep coming back to. Um, you know, we know that part of uh, the way we've been taught to look at these issues is that we, we did, we were segregated officially. Right. And now we're not. And now if communities are um, racially identifiable or culturally distinct. It's all a matter of choice. It's all, you know, a matter of the market. It's right. not about patterns or conditioned um, habits and, and also structures, the way we do uh, schooling, public and private, the way we continue to structure our religious communities. We tend not to really see how we are very, very, very deeply still embedded in and committed to, actually. We have a taste for, it seems like, segregation. And that yeah, structures we, 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 we reinvest in, yeah. in boundaries yes, we that, that we think we've gone beyond, um, you know, mentally in our media, we reinvest in those boundaries. We really do. That, that you are more different from me than is really the case. Yes. And we reinvest, meaning we send our kids to schools that are still very isolated. We move around the country. Uh, I live in San Francisco. I hear people find various and sundry different ways to explain why they leave a very diverse region. And often, my white friends, for example, find themselves in much more white spaces after the stresses of the city. Right. Um, there's a, there's a, and you know, sometimes this racial piece of it is mentioned, often not widely, but maybe in these quiet conversations. Um, I had a young woman come and talk to me about a friend of hers. It's often, you know, I'm speaking about a friend, not myself, but a friend of hers. This young woman was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, and she had another friend, an immigrant from Eastern Europe, who came to San Francisco and said she, had, she wanted to move away because um, she wanted to be around more Americans. And by that, she actually meant more whites. There still is a way that when we, we part of the legacy of white supremacy in America is that we've, you know, defined what it means to be American still, in, in the eyes of many, both domestically and internationally, as white. And that is what we are still up against, is what, you know, we have been seeing emerge in the political culture and the discourse around making America great again. There's, so there's a deeply embedded desire or kind of a way in which we keep moving into segregation and re reinforcing it, reinvesting in it, as you said. And that is 
again, part and parcel of, again, we're all in that world. So even as mindfulness organizations are built up, there are our networks are already very segregated, right? All of our networks for reaching out, finding potential teachers, finding you know, people to come to our organizations, our events, they're already very segregated. And so we are, we are, we are up against that, that challenge of, again, living in a society that's already structured to push us apart. And that dyna those dynamics are coming from so many different institutions that it's actually very hard for any institution to start reaching out to adults, adult learners, adult practitioners, and saying, let's come together from these very different you know, places of relative segregation and isolation. So that's a real, and so a concrete way to address that is, I mean, there are short-term steps, but I actually think the longer-term cultural change is what has to happen. We just have to, and this, this effort must outlive our own lifetimes. It will, right? We have to get, another problem we deal with in the West is very short-term focus. And if we real, if we don't, if we can't imagine our efforts realizing some gain tomorrow or make at the outside six months from now, we're not sure it's worth our time. We are not going to, going to change these patterns in this country uh, that took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to embed without a commitment to changing them that is at least as, as far-sighted. It must be. So are, are, you, are you suggesting that if you have too much of a hunger for immediate results, you really commit to? You mean, we're, if you really have to take on that notion that, you know, we're planting seeds in a garden that we will not see flower. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of it that way, that it's a way, if you say, well, I need a, you know, you silently in your mind, you think you want to see a short-term gain, you just give up. Okay, well, it's very easy to frustrate. this neighborhood isn't going to change. and This you know, community this, isn't going to change. This yeah. meditation group isn't going to change. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's very helpful. Well, keep going. Yeah, so we need both a very long-term commitment and a lot of patience. Which, both of which I think are gifts for me of my own mindfulness practice. And not that I've gotten there, right? These are, I'm a work in progress just like everybody else. But to be able to sit with the frustration that comes with, oh, here we are again, trying to address this same issue of the denial of white supremacy in our history with people who once again don't want to talk about it. It's frustrating. That's how an does, example. How does, you know, how, does, how does patience square with, you know, the, the um, possibility of, you know, falling into apathy or, yes. or not being willing to call somebody on something right. which you are willing to do? Yeah. <laughs> so it's both and again. It's both, um, you know, realizing there's a time for and a place in our own being in the world for patients, and there are times for, and, and a place for, being in action. And it's, again, it's not either or. Um, it's really, it really is both. So there are ways we can call people into conversations about white supremacy with compassion for the fact that we all kind of are in this together. We have all been trained away from this conversation. So it's going to be hard. 
is going to, you know, have to go by fits and starts and be interrupted, maybe even for years in a single organization because we're not ready for it yet. So it's really, I, I honestly think that to really deal with these issues is, you know, high grade, high pay grade level mindfulness work. It isn't for, you know, uh, people who have not really come to see the depth of what it means to see clearly, what it means to work with our own conditionings, to sit in the fire of the, you know, the painful recognition that, oh, my mind actually does uh, orient me to people who look like me. Oh, I am. I do feel safer. Honestly, I wish I didn't, but in fact, I do feel safer when I'm in these places. Mindfulness can help us with a lot of the really subtle difficulties of doing the work that must be done to dismantle these patterns and habits that draw us to reinvest in segregation. Mindfulness, compassion practices, these actually can help. So it's actually, a, it's both that kind of patience that comes with a mindful holding of a multi-generational looking back and forward at the same time type type of project because we are both looking at our particular histories how we got here and trying to imagine a future for our children and our children's children that will be much different and then try to work towards that future in part by trying to redeem our past looking at the role our particular communities our particular families our cultures have had in setting us on this journey that we're on that keeps pushing us in corners and polarizing us. What's been the role of our family, our culture, my neighborhood, my own conditioning in that tend those tendencies? How can I address those? And at the same time, realize that we're not gonna address them overnight. We can't, it will not happen overnight. We didn't get here overnight, but we can take steps we can take steps. You know, I, as you're talking, I'm about how we feel more comfortable in certain spaces. It, um, it reminds me of what, what uh, some of the fabric of culture is made of. And it, cultures are made of ways of being together. They're made of language. And, you know, there's a principle called the high context communication that that say within your family in in North Carolina you know you have a particular way of talking and being and communicating that that um, everyone understands together and if you bring somebody else into that they feel awkward right and um, you know, how do we deal with the power of cultures and yet try to do something that's transcultural? You know, mm -hmm. that, that do we need to create some embryonic mindfulness communities that we are, are at first maybe artificially structuring so that there are more types of people involved so that it, you know, I don't know. What do you, th you understand what I'm driving at? And, you I know, do. And I know that you, uh, you know, you're, you've been a longtime board member of the uh, Center for Contemplative Mind and Society, mm -hmm. as 
you know, some very big aims in terms of, um, you know, helping to transform all sorts of systems yes. with yes. mindful awareness. So anyway, how would you, yes. how would you respond to what I'm talking about there? Yeah. About? I, so I thank you for this question. I I think that it it is getting at really the the, the deep challenge that we're talking about. Um, you know, I'm a teacher in many different senses. <laughs> for one, as one example, I get to have 14 weeks with one group of students. But I've developed a course that I teach, for example, over 14 weeks, one called Contemplative Lawyering, one called um, Race and Law, Race and American Legal History. And in both, I've been allowed uh, by the institution that I work in, not everybody's gotten this kind of permission, wherever they might be, to actually bring mindfulness and compassion practices together with looking at um, you know, the legal structures that support and that may that support both oppression and may support you know fighting uh, for a, a more um, just world. So, in that, what I do in those classes for 14 weeks is help the students develop a kind of community, a kind of new way of being with the suffering that they have seen, naming it, or having the language to speak. So, emotional intelligence. Um, having the language to talk about um, what suffering looks like from their high context and to try to translate that into something that others in that room, a very diverse group, can understand and find their way into from their own high context position, their position of difference. Yeah. So what we do in those 14 weeks is really try to practice this. Um, but I do think something along the lines of those kinds of intentional engaged communities where we say we're gonna we this group of people is gonna meet on a regular basis and so I like others you know um, John Paul Lederach who's a internationally known peace maker right a practitioner of peace and writer about peace studies you know he's talked about how we have to have these conversations with each other that we're willing to stay in for a lifetime like meet somebody for coffee that will start a conversation that will last for the rest of our lives. I mean, that's ultimately what I think we need to do. How, you know, so there are going to be many small ways of doing that. An eight week course that's focused on coming together regularly, a 14 week course, a year long course, a community gathering space where we drop in, we drop out, but we know we're building the capacity to do this together and to come together. So I don't think there's one way to do it, but I do think once we start having this kind of conversation where we start seeing there's a need for both a kind of intentional commitment to community that is about trying to open um, the doorways into our different ways of being based on our particular context, our particular cultures, and, and connect across them. There's so many ways to do that once we decide that's what we want to do. But I think, so I think the first step is to see the imperative. We live in the 21st century, a radically diverse world and country right now, our own America, but interconnected with a, a world whose cultural and other differences are very, very profound. And yet we have never developed the 
intentional kinds of technologies, if you will, that address in deep ways what it means to bring people together across those cultures. I think mindfulness and compassion can help with that. Well, I think what one of the things I, I hear you recommending here is that, I mean, in addition to long-term patience and short-term persistence is, is to, um, that maybe there are possibilities for the kind of embryos I was talking about in the mm -hmm. sense that, that your semester is a time and a place and a container yeah. where people, where we, if we're in that container, we can't hide. Yeah. And with mindfulness, we have an opportunity to engage with some kindness and compassion, the ways in which we invest in separateness. Um, right. that and also just learn from each other and live the experience of togetherness. We don't yeah. have a lot of it. We don't have a lot of experience to draw on. Yeah, actually, that's interesting because in that, if you're living that experience, you actually can get some rewards from it. It begins exactly. to taste and feel good to you. Absolutely. You want more of that, and that I hadn't really appreciated. To this you. is very, yeah. very true. This is yeah. this I think is the heart of it. I mean, this is um, why desegregation and integration, when it worked, and I will say, I think it worked in my own experience in many ways. Um, policies of bringing people together. You know, I I was thrown into a school that was affirmatively trying to kind of be bust for desegregation and all of that. Um, but it was at a time when um, the community had stopped resisting, like publicly, right? So there weren't people out in the streets, parents saying no. We were going to school together. That meant we went to band class together. That meant we took French classes together, meaning whites, African-Americans and the 10 or 12% of other, right, in the South, we were, it was mostly black and white and a small percentage of so-called other, so people from a variety of different backgrounds. But we were in that, in those close spaces, working together um, and learning from in a way that actually was joyful. And I do think um, that is what my students experience in those classrooms, I know. I mean, I've had students Mary people find them to move from, I couldn't imagine uh, dating outside my group to I've now married a person from a totally different culture. And it was because of what happened in that class that made it possible for me to do that. So I do know that there is some, the, the heart of this is joy. I do think that we don't understand how we're all missing out on the joy of rich human community. We don't, we think that the, you know, the greatest benefit is what we've been told is, right? How to uh, make the pie bigger for our own. How to make sure my children, you know, have one step ahead of other people. These are the, the, the things that we've been taught to fight for, to strive for. We haven't had enough experience with another kind of powerful means for success, which is what it means to be enriched, diverse, culturally nuanced community. We just don't know that, most of us, and therefore we're afraid of it. So I think that's a, an excellent uh, jumping off point for um, talking about colorblindness. And you firmly reject that idea of colorblindness yeah. in favor of what you call a term you've coined color insight. And yes. can, can you describe the difference between those two, Rhonda? 
Yeah, so colorblindness is this idea that, um, and it comes from a beautiful place, I think, but it's the idea that the way to get beyond bias is to just not see it, not talk about it, not recognize ever, as, you know, as much as possible in our public discourse, not to recognize that these differences exist. In, in fact, uh, our brains don't operate that way. Of course we know differences exist, right? We've been raised in a world that has taught us a lot about what these differences mean. So whether we're talking about race or gender, we, we notice these things. And um, I think you may have used this practical example with me before at one point, you know, the kind of you could say that law is colorblind, but then when you're in a courtroom, your brain, your mind can perceive that there is, uh, you know, in that young black defendant, there's a palpable weakness against the system represented by the bench and the, I mean. Yeah, I mean, all of it, exactly. So, so we, that is the question. How do you deal with the fact that we do notice these things and yet our culture has been telling us, don't mention it, don't talk about it. You, in fact, if you raise it, you might be called racist. If you, if you turn us toward that, you might be part of the problem. That might be divisive. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting thing that we did over the last generation. I will say it happened over the last generation, although um, that's a kind of an oversimplification of it. But we got this beautiful language from Martin Luther King, right? His I Have a Dream speech. He wants a world in which his children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And there's been a sort of a cynical way that that beautiful aspiration, which for King was always embedded in a, a knowing of the depth of the way in which we do see uh, each other through, through race and through those, those lenses. That was taken as a kind of a, call, a, a clarion call, clarion call to simply put these issues in a box and not talk about them. Not ever recognize them, not take data, not gather data around race anymore, right? So there are many different ways that this idea of colorblindness has shown up in public policy and law. The idea of it. The reality, though, is when you go into a criminal courtroom in San Francisco, I've had um, a friend of mine who teaches juvenile justice and, and, and has a clinic for, for helping law students go in and represent young, you know, young juveniles who are threatened with conviction. She's relayed to me how her students <clears throat> have come to her with these sad stories of um, young black or brown um, juvenile who's entering into those courtrooms in San Francisco. And this one story in particular stands out for me where um, the young juvenile entering the system leans over to their student representative law student who's trying to develop a way of dealing with the system, trying to support this young person. The, the, the juvenile leans over and says, where's the court for white kids? Because the, all of the kids in this system around them are brown or black. Wow. It's, and they know white kids are getting into trouble and doing the same kind of stuff, but they're not in here. So that's, you know, that is what we, this, this sort of way in which we've tended to mute our conversation. It's, it's not that we don't see or understand or perceive the world around race. We've just 
silenced ourselves around it. And that is what color blindness has really meant color, you know, uh, inability to kind of awkwardness, right? Inability to talk about it. Not that we don't see it. So um, there's that, there, there's the way in which that term doesn't actually track reality. And there's also a bit of a kind of a critical response to the use of colorblind because there are, the disability rights community, for example, has pointed out that there's a way in which there's already an ignorance, if you will, around the capacities of people who are not sighted. And we don't want to use blindness to associate it with this other kind of ignorance. If we can avoid it. So there are many ways that people have said, let's, let's really look at this language of colorblind. In fact, what we're talking about is color evasion, denial of the reality of these aspects of our lives, um, an enforced awkwardness, an enforced silencing. And for me, an alternative really is to develop our capacities to actually effectively address these issues. I have used the word, the phrase color insight, to point to the way in which Again, our groundedness in mindfulness and compassion practices and in the capacity to just sit in silence for some periods of our lives, moments of the day, moments of an interaction, and try and really develop a sense of insight. What is going on here? That the metaphor of insight, if you will, is something that I think is important to be brought to bear as a counterpoint to um, blindness, if you will. That, that we have been, you know, raised up with in the last generation. So how does that tie into mindfulness? How can mindfulness practices help cult cultivate this, this kind mm -hmm. of insight? The ability and, to see difference and yet um, begin to transcend in some sense. Yeah. Well, again, it will go back to my own way of thinking about mindfulness, which is not just as short-term very personal self-improvement intervention. It is, it is about having a regular daily commitment to a kind of practice that is about awakening and awareness in a very deep way that is ongoing for one's life. Mindfulness is about really cultivating the capacity to be present to reality, um, to this moment, but to see it as embedded in a, a kind of a, a context. Um, then mindfulness is, I think, a way of being with this part of reality, right, in a more profound way. It, and so it's, um, it's seeing mindfulness, first of all, in this richer, deeper way. It's not limited to these personal daily practices for clarifying the mind, for productivity. It is those things and then deepening our capacity to see the interconnectedness of all, right? The way in which my being able to sit for 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes a day is tied to a kind of a certain kind of structure of convenience that is not open to everybody. So in other words, there are ways that our practices can really enhance and open up our capacity to see interconnection everywhere and our capacity to be with suffering on a long-term basis. And these are the kinds of insights and skills that are essential to this work of dismantling on a long-term basis the patterns that lead to bias and oppression. So to the extent that 
that the somewhat overpopularized view of mindfulness, and it's great that mindfulness is becoming popular. Yes. But, but there is a kind of a dominant mainstream cultural vibe that's developing that associates it with kind of escaping. It's just time out. But you're suggesting that it very much also needs to be time in yes. where, you're, where you really now, you know, you have the capacity to look with less fear and yes. more openness. And I Very think, well said. yes, yeah, I think that does tie back to you know your semester where, if you do that in community, it it uh, you know you get a little bit of a bravery, yes, uh, from from peers doing it. You know, um, yes, uh, Don McCown who who teaches mindfulness in Philadelphia mm -hmm. is yeah. very much of the mind that that. Um, Mindfulness is a group practice. It's very, you know, and, and mindfulness-based interventions are done in groups. Yes. And people have opportunities in those structures to reveal themselves um, in very important ways. Yes, so, I agree with that entirely. Um, I think that, you know, uh, you and I both know Cheryl Petty. Yes. We did a conference together with Cheryl down in Virginia. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing something that Cheryl said, but, you know, she was basically sharing with with us and, or with me mm -hmm. in any way that, you know, folks who know equity work deeply, who, who, who know about the deep historically embedded sources of systemic bias and racism, such as you've been talking about, they don't tend to know much about mindfulness. It's true hasn't infiltrated that that uh, academic community all that much and activist community all that much. And on this, by the same token, people who know mindfulness deeply uh, don't know much about, about deep historical ingrained tendencies and might have a tendency to, um, you know, overlook those kinds of things and think that, well, if you're just aware and kind, then everything's going to be mm -hmm. fine. It's true. I'm doing anything racist right now. I'm just meditating. Right. Um, you know, Cheryl was suggesting these two need to get together somehow. Absolutely. <laughs> Cheryl and I are very much on the same page about this. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about that? that I mean, works? I just would say I absolutely, I think Cheryl's insight there is right on. It is absolutely true. Um, again, part and parcel of the way our society isolates, um, silos, right? We, we kind of get into our line of discourse and we, um, we often fail to see some of the ways that we need to connect with other, like, you know, our mindfulness discourse over here does need to find its way into a conversation with social justice activists, people are trying to change the world and vice versa, right? You know, um, that social justice discourse actually needs to, to kind of infuse, get connected up, be a part of the mindfulness movement. I do, again, I think this is again where patience is essential, even though we want, to, we want this change to happen right now. Um, it's not easy. I speak from the position of one who's been seeking to bring these two discourses and communities of practice together 
for you know 20 years um, maybe 10 years explicitly 20 years implicitly right but I've been doing this work um, for long enough to see it's really hard and it's hard for reasons that are totally predictable meaning I completely understand why if you've been raised in a world of social justice activism you may not have come across mindfulness and these other ways of um, being with our conditioned uh, you know our habits and practices and, and reactivity you might not have come that might not have been a part of how you got into social justice activism and similarly I completely understand how being brought into Western mindfulness may not have come through the door of social justice activism and awareness around those things. I get it. And, but when you really get it, you start to see with some compassion that if we're going to make a difference around these things, we have to find, we have to refine what we're doing, um, deepen our capacity to reach out even in the most difficult places and to stay in connection despite frustration that will inevitably arise when we find feel like we're not moving fast enough and so on and so forth. So this is this is really, I think Cheryl's comment there is really spot on. Um, and it would require, again, I can imagine a world where a generation or two from now, we are teaching social justice, as, as has begun to be the case, not only in my class, but in other classes. Beth Barilla is teaching anti-oppression work around gender and so on um, through the lens of mindfulness and compassion. Others around the country are starting to do this. I can imagine our children might be invited into classes that both heighten their awareness of social injustice and what it means to fight against oppression, but, but also are supported with some kind of practices, whether we call them mindfulness or otherwise. And similarly, I can see training for mindfulness teachers. In fact, I know that's also starting to happen. But I can imagine a generation from now that we, when we train teachers in mindfulness, part of that training is a rich, deep look at who that teacher is in terms of their own conditionings around these social identity issues of race, of gender, of mm, immigration status, of disability, of class, all, the way in which mindfulness teachers are trained, right, ultimately, I think, needs to be infused with this understanding as well. You know, I think in this conversation that the three of us were having, and I'm remembering an a practical example that came up, and this reminds me of something you said earlier about people having the having the time and luxury to meditate or yes, you know I think somebody was talking about a a program for social activism that where there was a you know there was a mindfulness based program and and there was total silence at all the meals, and you know it was an artificial imposition mm -hmm. of a of a structure right. that was not inviting right. to, and you know, we have to probably examine, you know, again, talking about creating these embryos, yeah. we have to examine all the assumptions about what we think is absolutely required to make a certain kind of a mindfulness space or retreat. I know. think that's so true. 
I think that's absolutely true. Um, and that, again, we don't do overnight and we don't, right, we don't accomplish, you know, with uh, a workshop or we, these are deep patterns of change, right? You know, this is what structural change looks like to start to say, hmm, how are we actually setting up, or what are the, the assumptions about what we need to do for this to be about mindfulness? That might actually be off-putting to many of the people we would want to feel at home here. Um, and, you know, so there are people like um, Ed, uh, Ed Ng, who's a mindfulness, um, a kind of a Buddhist, uh, a, a cult cultural heritage Buddhist who has been actually criticizing some of what the Western mindfulness movement has brought to bear. And one of the lines of critique that, I, that he's made that I think is worthy of amplification is how it is that we have tended not to look closely enough at how some of the traditions from which mindfulness emerged, Buddhism as its practice, um, include not just sitting meditation and sitting in silence and those kinds of trainings that we associate with preparation for being a monk or the kind, you know, the kind of deep immersion that um, a certain element in Buddhism has, 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 has been, a certain, uh, that has been picked up, an as, it's an aspect of Buddhism that has been identified in Western mindfulness as like what mindfulness means, the sitting practices, very important. But if you listen to heritage Buddhists, people who have come from cultures which have been infused with these practices for a very long time, they talk about the work of coming together, um, shelling peas together, um, cutting and preparing the food for a meal together, sitting together um, in a way that is um, infused with the fact that we are in a human community together. So it can be partly in silence, of course, but also infused with loving connection. And so that, again, would take me back to the kind of community I grew up in, where it wasn't about what we called mindfulness, or it wasn't from a Buddhist tradition, certainly, but we really were embedded in a sense that we were we held hands, for example, when we got together. It was very common that when we would come together, at some point, there would be actual physical contact, which, again, for people whose backs are up against the wall, which I would say in, certain sense, in a certain sense, all humankind is feeling this sense of bereftness of you know, what it means to be embedded in loving community. Being able to actually, you know, in appropriate ways, reach out and connect Again, if we need social psychology and neurobiology to affirm this, it's doing so, right? The research is confirming the importance of just human touch. And so there are just a lot of different ways that we could, as you say, examine the assumptions we bring, uh, and then it could show up in different things that we do when we come together in mindfulness gatherings. You know, it's interesting. I, I think in, in terms of, of Buddhism and mindfulness, you know, there's a way in which in it coming to the West, you know, lots of parts of a, of a, of a bigger spectrum of Buddhism have been stripped away. At the same time, there's also a way in which Buddhists can also be kind of um, um, reactionary almost 
in feeling yes. that Buddhism possesses mindfulness. Yes. In the sense that mindfulness is actually a basic human trait. Mm -hmm. And there are many traditions that have um, mm -hmm. cultivated mindfulness. And, you know, mm -hmm. so that I think we need to work at that from both ends, speaking you know, <laughs> a, from a point of view of a magazine and a website that's committed to bringing, uh, you know, cultivating mindfulness and mind training in, in public context where, mm -hmm. you know, religion per se um, needs to be, let's say, left at the door. But you know what doesn't need to be left at the door is sacredness, community, right. yes, fundamental values that, and and I think that you yes. know, pushing away of that, uh, either for religious or secular reasons, is problematic. I completely agree. And again, you're touching on the challenge. It's not that, um, you know, Buddhism needs to be brought. I'm not, I do know that some people believe that, you know, we solve this by kind of bringing Buddhism back in, so to speak, into mindfulness. Um, but I, I, again, I think that's an, that would be, in my view, a kind of oversimplification of what the challenge is. Yeah. Um, so we can both recognize, you know, these various different streams of Buddhism and the various different manifestations of it, the cultural heritage piece of it that needs to be honored and the diversity within and amongst all of those things without then saying that the answer to the challenges that we face in mindfulness and in bringing in a sense of community and connectedness is to bring Buddhism fully back into the end. I don't think that's what we need. I do think though, it means like, as you say, really looking at what are the under, what's the rich, deep underlying set of values and ethical commitments that have been at the core of inner work, whether we call it Buddhism or centering Christianity or um, whatever it is, Islam, there are core ethical and um, I would say, you know, values-based commitments that have a certain kind of, a certain set of things in common. And I think when you and I met at that retreat so many years ago, I think part of the purpose of that was to try to look at what is in common across all of these different traditions. And so that is a conversation I am always up for. I do think, again, it's another way into this conversation about dealing with difference while recognizing sameness all at once. You know, I think that, you know, that relates a bit to the colorblindness thing in the sense that, you know, roots matter, um, you know, that there's a good tradition that's developing in Canada now that at most public gatherings of some kind now, or well, certainly many, I don't know mm -hmm. if it's yet most, there will be a statement at the beginning respecting that we're on Aboriginal land. Mm -hmm. and yes. There's a, you know, quality, just that, that little bit of indication yes. at the beginning that kind of transforms your thinking. Like, yeah. you know, or if I think about your grandmother, mm -hmm. her roots yes. are a big part of who she is. And if you just mm -hmm. think, well, everybody's kind of the, basically the mm -hmm. same. Yeah. We all shop at the Piggly Wiggly. 
<laughs> you know, that's, um, you know, you have to listen to somebody's deep roots. Uh, yes. yes, I mean, um, I am, there's a, there is a, a set of teachers that I've certainly been mindful of some of the, the wisdom that's coming out of the Canadian context, but just this idea, certainly, of honoring roots and honoring lineage and also, again, also, you know, being able to deal with the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with looking at our lineage. Not, you know, sugarcoating it, but to really um, recognize that, first of all, we all have some lineage, you know, and that as we deepen our capacity to honor where we have come from and how we end up here together, uh, we do enrich who we are from that. We do, I think, strengthen our capacity to go forward with brokenheartedness and with joy, right? All of that is going to come up when we really get more real about who we are. I honestly feel that is really a kind of a potential gift and benefit of mindfulness that we haven't quite figured out how to talk about, um, quite figured out how to see or live our way into, but it's this ability to be real. I, I think that's quite beautiful that, you know, the, that, um, you know, if, as you look at roots and lineages, you have to look at the, at the really bad parts too. And that, mm. you know, our roots it's, it's, are part of who we are. They are not all of who we are. Absolutely. Exactly. You know, it, it reminds me the fact that, that you are uh, a triple University of Virginia grad. Yes, I am. A fine institution that mm -hmm. has, you know, a beautiful thing there called the Contemplative Science Center. Founded by Thomas Jefferson, a very high-minded person who was also a very aggressive slaveholder. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and did not found the Contemplative Sciences Center, by the way, but the University of Virginia itself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, he found right. He, <laughs> yes, we should be clear on that. Yes, we should be clear on that. <laughs> so I'm wondering how you must have felt as somebody who spent so much time at the University of Virginia and um, got so much from it, I imagine, mm -hmm. that when you saw what happened in Charlottesville yes. here, I mean, how, yeah. how did that feel for you? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, it was devastating, uh, really, because the images uh, that were shown all around the world brought me right back to those physical locations. I, you know, spent eight years in Charlottesville, undergraduate law and sociology, graduate sociology, um, but eight years in that community. And so every step of the march that the Tiki Torch Carriers did, that's on ground I've walked probably much more than most of the people carrying those torches. Um, the statues around which they were circled and all of that. I literally stood by, you know, one of those statues um, when I first started trying to practice public speaking and gave a little speech out there. And the place where Heather Heyer was murdered, that street is one, walked many times. I had a, a really 
close friend, a partner for a time who had a job right on that same street. So we would literally walk those streets. So for me uh, to see this place that I knew very viscerally and personally as a source of community um, be taken over in service of division um, and to be a, you know, a site for the fomentation of, of, of that kind of very ugly underbelly that is in our culture but to see it coming up there was really, really difficult. At the same time, it wasn't shocking in the sense that I um, have long known that this underbelly, uh, this undercurrent of American culture ha has never gone away. So despite the fact that I was trained like everybody else to sort of believe that we had moved into a world of color blindness and post-racial this and that, you know, I grew up in a world which told me otherwise you know, constantly being reminded of the different ways that race still mattered and that white supremacy and male supremacy were still desired in our country. I've lived knowing that. So seeing that was painful, but not um, totally unsurprised or totally surprising to me. Uh, so, you know, I just have a, have a couple more questions. It's been, it's been so wonderful as it always is to talk with you and uh you know i don't want it to end but but all good things must come yes. to i just have mm -hmm. a couple more things though that you know and you're talking about uh, white supremacy and male supremacy uh you know i'm reminded of the of the term intersectionality and you know meaning um you know yes. that that biases don't come in in <laughs> singular packages you know there right. you know you can be at the intersection of several boxes yes in indeed cases an african-american woman that's mm -hmm. just a, a couple of ways and, yes. um, but intersectionality is also a complicated academic intellectual term <laughs> exactly. and, you know part of the way that we make change is by you know examining and studying the world and coming up with new words and concepts and sharing those kinds of insights and a lot of that happens in academia but then you know when it reaches beyond that it's difficult language if yes. you don't even if you have you know academic training you might not have academic training in that particular discipline mm -hmm. so it becomes very hard to follow I wonder what you're, I mean, I find it a very interesting challenge because I'm not saying in any way at all that, you know, these disciplines and uh, languages and are not important and extremely helpful, but how, you know, how do you work with that? Because you are an academic and, a, and yes. you're an activist as well, yes. and a teacher. So. Oh, another great question. Um, it's, uh, it's something that I that I am am right. It's right. It's a very present issue. This question of how to talk about what we're talking about in ways that bring people into the conversation and don't push them away. Um, it's it's a good you know it's a it's a feature of life in academia that this you know that we do develop these these terms that are you know what we are using in in our little world and then when we try to come out and communicate with others we can lose lots of people this is a you know a problem that all so-called elites are facing right now um that is to say we haven't figured out 
well enough just how to communicate what it is that we see in the world and beyond our little circle of you know concerned um, other parties who speak the same language um, so yeah it's I sometimes don't use the word intersectionality even though I completely understand it and completely <laughs> live it because I think it's is un, you know not as well understood um, even by people who use it um, you know it's a term that emerged to try and capture as you pointed out the reality that these patterns of othering so that's a word that I think people understand a little bit better um, and the experience of it right of being an other being a person who doesn't really fit in and doesn't belong um, or being um, a part you know person who represents a group who is tended to be uh, on the margin if you will there you know using the word othering versus uh, the phrase othering and belonging which is something mm -hmm. that you know john powell and others who do this work have been emphasizing those are words that i think capture as well some, something about what it is that um intersectionality is meant to capture which is there are very, the ways in which we are othered or made to feel unwelcome differ profoundly depending on our particular characteristics so it's going to be different for me as a black woman who came from a kind of a relatively poor background in terms of access to resources, including education prior to my own generation and all of that. There is a way in which being a black woman from a poor background sort of positions me, and I would say a poor background who's now sort of moved beyond that, right? So now I've seen the other side of the class divide um, in my own lifetime. All of those are very unique aspects of like positioning on a sort of social, a very dynamic social landscape. And if we only are talking about race, we're missing the way that gender is raced uh, or race is gender, right? So that, you know, our experience of race has a gender dynamic to it that um, only others who are similarly uh, is situated really are kind of able to see in the same way and even individuals who are all kind of black and female let's say we're not experiencing the world exactly the same either so what begins to happen is we break start to you know push on the vast oversimplification that runs with identity conversations there's just a lot of oversimplification that we've just gotten used to the idea that when we say black woman we kind of know what that means or when we say white male i mean actually these are just the beginning like they're just just a kind of surface right that might touch upon something that is an invitation as far as i'm concerned into like what is it does that what does that mean in this person's experience what does it mean in mine what does it mean in yours um but i think terms like intersectional are meant to try to push us in the direction of comp you know not being so simplistic in the way that we think about these things but we need better language because the language is a bear well i think that i really get what you're you know you make a very good point about the intention behind having the word intersectionality is to undermine simplistic concepts that we assume uh, are have a solid meaning a solid identity lack mm -hmm woman white man mm -hmm. uh, and you know you 
you can and you are finding ways to do that outside of the academic community, finding language such as simpler language like othering and, and belonging mm -hmm. uh, that can reach wider without, again, assuming that there's something wrong with the, uh, you know, the academic language. Mm -hmm. I, I want to end on one note. I, I think it, I would be remiss if, if before we left, we didn't talk about your role as an educator of lawyers and, you know, day in, day out in your life, you're educating lawyers who will go on and, and do things in the world. And, you know, I just like to end by hearing you say something about how your mindfulness work, and you've already talked about your classes, but um, you know, how your mindfulness work informs, could inform both how they practice law day in, day out, and also that much larger notion of how justice is uh, exercised in the world. Since, um, as Dr. King said, um, you know, the, um, I don't know how the arc of history is long, but it, but it inclines towards justice. So, um, anyway, what would you say about that? How mindfulness informs your role in, in preparing our future lawyers? Yeah. Well, I do agree with this idea that the moral arc is long, um, but it bends toward justice. And I would add, you know, you don't want to edit brilliance, but it, it bends because people bend it towards justice. <laughs> There's no inevitability toward that. I mean, that's just a fact. So um, part of what I think mindfulness uh, in law does is help prepare students for the work of bending the moral arc of the universe toward justice. It's work. Um, and that you know, being a lawyer gives one a particular position. Again, which, again, it's another kind of identity, location in the world. But it gives a person a particular role, potential role to play um, as an advocate, as a person who assists in bridging communities, right? Um, there's a lot of different leadership and other roles that lawyers are invited to play. A lot of that, frankly, historically, has been about maintaining these unfair systems. And so the real challenge is to be part of the system, but not fully of it, right? Be enough a part of it to understand it, but also be a kind of a, you know, a kind of a place in that system, uh, a voice, a spirit, if you will, for a different way. And so that shows up in teaching students a little bit more about how to listen to clients well, how to meet their suffering, because many, most people who come to a lawyer are in some form of distress or trying to avoid being in it, right? So they're right. either trying to prepare, right, or deal with distress. So there are concrete ways that we help lawyers by helping them listen, by helping them have emotional intelligence and empathy. Um, could say more about those concrete things. But at the same time, really, we are, those of us bringing mindfulness to law, are seeking to bring a different 
view to law, a view that recognizes nuance more effectively, all the things we've been talking about, sees paradox and can deal with both and a little bit more effectively, is um, aware that adversarial modes of resolving conflict are just one set of tools in the toolbox of an effective lawyer, but there are many other ways to help people resolve conflict and come together around um, some sort of issue of, of, of disconnect. So it's a, it's a project that is about um, both helping expand the sense of what it means to be a knowledgeable and skillful and grounded uh, person who can help others in the midst of conflict and help a structural world uh, through law, right? So it's about expanding the skill set. But it's also about really helping prepare a new generation of people in this profession who can help us bring about a, a world in which, uh, to quote King again, right, he saw justice as what love looks like in public. <laughs> uh, or, well, that, okay, that, so that's actually, and now I'm really, that's Cornell West, who's ah. taken King's statement of justice as justice for King was love correcting that which stands against love. So it's all about realizing that there is a role to play in bringing the kind of compassionate, caring meeting of our struggle through our systems, right? Then that, that public face of love is what justice is all about. And so that is what I'm trying to do to, to kind of work with my law students. And what that looks like looks, you know, is something, one thing in my torts class, my personal injury class, one thing in my race law class, one thing in the retreat side, co-lead for lawyers. But it is about creating a, a different way of being in this profession that I hope in a generation in the years beyond my lifetime will make it more of a source of loving public engagement with the challenges of life as opposed to just adversarialness. Well, that's a, a beautiful point to end on. And, uh, you know, it reminds me that we started earlier talking about uh, mindfulness as being, uh, you know, so much more than a personal improvement project and uh, more than just uh, relaxing and, uh, you know, and in, in, in what you have to say and what you do, you, you really embody that. And uh, mm -hmm. this has been... Uh, such an inspiring conversation and so great to spend this kind of time with you and I'm, uh, I'm glad we can uh, celebrate Mindful's fifth anniversary together like this. Yes. Thank you so much, Barry. This has been a joy for me too. And I'm really grateful for the work that Mindful has been doing, that you've been doing in the world. So with, with great respect and honor for what yeah. you're doing. Well, thank you very much and uh, till next time. <laughs>